Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. Over the past decade, the city of Chengdu, capital of the Sichuan province, has emerged as an important Tibetan city in China. Various forms of financial, political and symbolic capital have come together, converging in Chengdu, creating a centre for social mobilisation around the production of Tibetanists. Here to make his case is Dr. Gerald Roche, an anthropologist and senior research fellow in the Department of Politics and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, Gerald. No worries. You're welcome. So this could be an entire podcast series on this one question that I'm about to ask. (laughs) But can you give me a bit of a, a background on Tibet and China and how they did thus collide? Like you said, it's a big question which we could spend a long time talking about. To give the briefest answer that I could, I would say that there are sort of two phases in the relationship between Tibet and China, right? So one is a pre-existing imperial relationship, which extends back centuries where Tibet and China have sort of been two alternatively rising and falling imperial centers, invading and seizing one another's uh, territories, exchanging dignitaries and so on. But really, the new phase of Sino-Tibetan relations begins with the founding of New China in the middle of the 20th century and the incorporation of the Tibetan regions into what we call the People's Republic of China today. That process basically took place across a number of years from the late 40s to the early 50s with the Communist Party of China coming to seize power in Tibetan-inhabited areas. There was resistance against that, starting through the late 40s in sort of the outer areas of Tibet, which had first come under party rule, coming to a head in 1959 inside Lhasa. As a result of the violent suppression of that resistance, there was a flight into exile, into India, and the creation of a diaspora community, which now spreads all the way around the world. Mm -hmm. Mm. And the... The Free Tibet movement is still quite a, a vocal movement, maybe yep. more so outside of Tibet than the yep. Tibetan plateau. Yep. A lot of your research has been looking at the language of the region and the movement of people. So can you, you tell me a bit about that approach? Yeah, right. So I'll tie that in with the Free Tibet movement as well. So my work focuses on the existence of linguistic diversity on the Tibetan plateau and also amongst Tibetan people, right? So we need to separate those two things. Mm-hmm. So first of all, the Tibetan plateau is ethnically diverse. It means that there's not just Tibetan people living there. There are other ethnic groups and they speak other languages which are not Tibetan. So that's one layer of diversity. And then the second layer of diversity is that even amongst Tibetan people, you have significant linguistic diversity. So that linguistic diversity amongst Tibetan people is made up of two different layers. One is the diversity of what we might call the Tibetan dialects. Right, so they're all types of Tibetan language. They're all recognizable as some type of Tibetan, but they are highly divergent from one another in ways that, for example, British and American English and Australian English are not. Mm -hmm. So even people speaking different Tibetan dialects often can't understand one another and have to resort either to a written language or another spoken language for communication like Chinese or English. But then you also have another group of languages which are non-Tibetan languages. And there's maybe about 30 of these languages we actually don't quite know, Mm. right? Because language research is still very much an ongoing thing inside the People's Republic of China. So 
In Tibet, you have this ethnically and linguistically diverse population, which then gets fragmented and scattered into exile. The Free Tibet Movement that picks up in India and amongst the Tibetan community around the world, they have a sort of a resistance movement against what's happening inside China, which is based on the idea that Tibet is linguistically homogenous, that all Tibetans speak a single language. Right. Right. So you, you actually have this kind of tension where the Free Tibet Movement, the exile language politics are actually in tension with the existing linguistic diversity inside of China. And then the irony is, is that Chinese state policy and the Free Tibet Movement they actually mirror one another in the way that they view that diversity, right? <laughs> so the Chinese state views all Tibetans as linguistically homogenous. Yeah. The Free Tibet Movement and its international support network also views Tibetans as linguistically homogenous. And so even though the state and the resistance movement are opposed to each other in just about every way you could imagine, they come to this uncanny agreement on the issue of Tibetans as a people with one language. Wow. Okay. One thing that comes to mind, though, is, say, for example, the Tibetan community in India have been there for upwards of 70, 80 years now. Is their language evolving to maybe adapt Hindi words, for example, or, or, or local words and dialects? Yeah, I would say that it is. I mean, I would preface my answer by saying that I haven't conducted research on this. Yeah. So I'm talking from general impressions and reading of the literature. But the formation of a kind of an exile form of Tibetan results from a number of factors. So one is that when you have the splinter of the Tibetan community inside China into the exile community, it's a non-representative selection, right? You get certain types of people from certain places fleeing across the border into India and other people staying behind in China, right? So for example... The majority of the non-Tibetan languages spoken by Tibetans in China are really focused on a particular area in western Sichuan province, not far from Chengdu, which we'll be talking mm. about. Mm. Whereas the exile community, a large portion of those people come from central Tibet around Lhasa and the surrounding area. So a lot of the languages that are spoken inside the PRC don't get represented in the exile community. But then beyond that, the formation of a kind of exiled Tibetan language. Like you said, it's been influenced by loanwords from Hindi and from English. That's been a large part of it. But the second part of it is really the coming together of the diversity that does exist in exile to form a common mode of communication. Oh, okay. Right? Because yep. those people are usually speaking Tibetan dialects that are not mutually comprehensible. They are struggling to communicate and gradually forming this interlanguage, right? which is mm. based heavily on Plaza Tibetan with lots of English and Hindi loan words and sort of other elements of other dialects of Tibetan. I think there's a, often a common misconception that exile Tibetan, diaspora Tibetan, is just the same as Lhasa Tibetan or some kind of Tibetan that is already spoken inside the PRC. Yeah. But it's not. It's really an, a new, emergent, dynamic form of Tibetan language. Okay. So tell me about Chengdu then and how does such a large Tibetan community come to converge in that one city which is quite a fair bit away from the Tibetan Plateau? I guess the first thing to say is that it's actually not that far from the Tibetan Plateau. Mm. So you can be up in a tall apartment complex building with a good view and you can see snow-capped mountains on a clear day. Of the Plateau. Which is where the yeah. Plateau starts. You can be in Tibetan communities and back to Chengdu within a day, which is something that I did 
last year. Yeah. That's one factor which has really influenced the rise of Chengdu as a Tibetan city is its proximity. Now, that proximity is only increasing as the infrastructure in the area gets better and better and better, right? There's been sort of a constant upgrade of the road infrastructure in the region over the last 20 years or so. Mm. They've just opened a new highway that connects Chengdu to the city of Darzemdo, which is an important Tibetan city. Now people are telling me that it takes maybe two or three hours between the two cities. So you've got that incentive then to go to a large city for employment. And I guess also because you know that there's a Tibetan community establishing itself there yep. and you've got a network of support there you'd be able to tap into. Yeah, so that's right. So there's people who come from the surrounding Tibetan areas of Sichuan province into Chengdu to get things that they can't get elsewhere mm. back home. Medical services that are not available in their hometowns, all sorts of commercial products, even things that they can access back home will be cheaper in Chengdu. So if you've got a big purchase to make, like a car or a telly or something like that, mm. then you want to go to Chengdu and save yourself some money on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's also educational facilities in the cities, like the universities are all centered there. So if you're a Tibetan and you want a university education, you've got to go to Chengdu. You can't really get that on the plateau in your homelands. So there's all of these sort of um, pull factors which are bringing people into the city. I think the important thing is, is that they're not only just coming from the nearby areas in Sichuan, and this is one of the things that makes Chengdu special, is that there are now people coming really from all across the Tibetan plateau to gather in Chengdu. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is that... We have Tibetans from the Tibet Autonomous Region, from Lhasa and the rest of the province, coming into Chengdu basically to retire, but also to overwinter. So here we've got government workers, business elites, and people like that who are coming to Chengdu as a kind of respite or a resort city, right? It's got all sorts of commercial things that they can't get their hands on back home. The weather is a lot better in the depths of winter. Mm. And there's also an active and exciting Tibetan community there that they can be a part of. Yeah. So therefore, we've got people from the Tibet Autonomous Region, people from the sort of the Tibetan homelands in Sichuan. And now increasingly, I think you've also got people coming from the northern part of the Tibetan plateau, which is known in Tibetan as Amdo and is mostly the Chinese province of Qinghai and Gansu. And they're also increasingly coming down to Chengdu as well now. Mm, okay, okay. And when you say that there's a population building there, it is still comparatively a small population that we're talking about, isn't it? So there's yeah. 14 million people in Chengdu. Yep. And on the books, there's about 30,000 Tibetans in the 2010. But survey. you suspect that it's more? Yeah, so these kind of census figures really have to be interpreted fairly heavily to get a sense of what's actually happening on the ground. So when they say that there are 30,000 Tibetans living in Chengdu in the formal census, what that actually means is that there are 30,000 Tibetans that are formally registered as living in Chengdu. So you've really got these three different populations. You've got the long-term residents living in Chengdu, You've got people who are staying there for a couple of years, they're sojourning in the city, and you've got migrants who are sort of cycling in and out of the city on a constant basis. So that figure of there being only 30,000 Tibetan people inside Chengdu, it really just captures the tip of the iceberg, I think. That number is also 2010, did you say? Yeah, that's right. So nearly 10 years old. What yep. do you think is a slightly more realistic number, given what you've just said and the passage of time? 
I would say that probably we could talk about there being half a million Tibetans inside Chengdu, mm. right? That would take into account the large number of migrants coming in and out of the city and the people residing there for shorter amounts of time, the growing population of long-term residents and so on. That's a sizable minority. Yeah, that's a sizable number of people. And in addition to that, even the small numbers that are officially listed in the census data show that Tibetans are the largest minority population inside Chengdu, yeah. right? So Chengdu city is uh, dominated by Han Chinese, the ethnic majority of the People's Republic of China. The next largest group are the Tibetans, and then there are a bunch of other minority groups also living in the city. Mm. In a lot of Western cities, you have a district that can be known as Chinatown. In Melbourne, you've got a place that is colloquially called Little Italy, although it's probably less Little Italy these days. Mm -hmm. So is there a Tibet district, officially or unofficially, of Chengdu? There is. So there's a district kind of quite near the centre of town. So it's within the first ring road of Chengdu. The district is called the Wuho district, and it's been the centre of Tibetan life in Chengdu, I would say, since the middle of the 20th century. That area is very visibly Tibetan. When you enter that neighbourhood, you notice immediately that there are Tibetan signage on the street, prayer flags hanging up across the doors of the different shops and down alleyways. The shops are selling visibly Tibetan stuff. There's religious icons, uh, Tibetan pop music. There's posters for Tibetan performing artists and the streets are full of Tibetan people walking around. So as soon as you step into this neighborhood, you can notice that it's visibly different from the rest of the city. Mm. Even though that is the central hub for the Tibetan community in Chengdu, it's about 10% of the registered population in the census lives in that district. Can we talk about social mobilization now? What sort of trends can you witness in this city that is brought about by having such a concentration of Tibetanness. Yeah, sure. What do I mean by that idea of social mobilization? What I'm referring to is the way that people collectively pursue projects with social, cultural, linguistic aims, right? So to give an example of one form of social mobilization that I've been interested in over the last couple of years is that there has been, for the past decade, a movement around the protection, the purification, and the promotion of the Tibetan language. Mm. So there's been a growing sense in China that the Tibetan language is under threat, that it's being excluded from major institutions like uh, education and media, that the language does not have sufficient resources to develop and keep up with the pace of contemporary life, and so that the language is increasingly having to rely on other languages to develop, so namely Chinese. So one of the really big concerns amongst many Tibetans in China today is this idea of linguistic purity. As new things come into Tibetan people's lives, they have to borrow from Chinese to talk about those things. Mm. So talking about all forms of new technology, administrative, bureaucratic, and government aspects of daily life, all of that vocabulary is drawn in from Chinese. A lot of Tibetans are extremely worried about this. There's a movement to develop new Tibetan terms to replace those Chinese words, yeah. uh, to promote those terms, to help people to learn them, to encourage them to use those terms, and so on. And so these kinds of movements, they use cities like Chengdu as an important base, right? So, for example, there are a series of regular meetings in Chengdu which uh, gather together 
scholars, people from the monasteries, people in the media to talk about the challenges of language and to really to sit down and develop new words and figure out how to get them worked into the Tibetan language. Now, all of those uh, people can only come together in places like Chengdu, people with those different levels of expertise, people from different places. You have these kind of hubs forming where people from across Tibet come together, they work on these social movements, these social mobilization projects, and then they disperse back out across the Tibetan plateau, either physically by going back to the communities where they're from or by getting on social media and spreading out the message that they're trying to get across. So these people are working to develop new terms in Tibetan. They're then building them into dictionaries. They're promoting them online. They're making groups on social media to encourage people to learn those words. And so that movement, which is really based in a room in Chengdu, is uh, spreading out across the entire Tibetan plateau and really reaching into all corners of the Tibetan community in China. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that you've got a strong sense of community building, say, around particular businesses that establish themselves there and that sort of thing can help in its own way encourage the growth of the community intentionally or unintentionally. That's right. So you have these businesses emerging in Chengdu which are really serving to sort of accelerate and focus these different forms of social mobilization and a lot of those focus on accelerating businesses elsewhere in Tibet, Mm. right? So you've seen the emergence in the last, I would say again, 10 years of really a drive for entrepreneurship amongst Tibetans as a way of dealing with the fact that rural society, subsistence society is being actively dismantled. The people who are going through the schools today are not going to be going back to the farm to work like their parents and grandparents did before them. One of the really major challenges both for Tibetan people as individuals but also for the state in the ways that it manages its Tibetan population is what are all these people going to do? What jobs are they going to have? Over the last 30-odd years, the main source of um, salaried employment for Tibetans has been the Chinese government. They've gone to work as bureaucrats. Those jobs are limited in number. They are decreasing in number. And other Tibetans need something to do, right? So there's been this effort by the government to promote business and business skills as a way for people to make a living. Foreign NGOs and international organizations have also been involved in trying to promote a business sector amongst Tibetans as well. Mm. So some of these social spaces that are emerging in Chengdu are trying to intensify those developments as well. So, for example, Chengdu now has a Tibetan-owned and operated co-working space, right, which is a cafe where people can come together, share ideas, work on their projects. There are conference rooms there, regular public events where they invite guest speakers to come and talk about business skills, entrepreneur skills. So it's a kind of startup incubator, Mm. social movement hub. It's all of those things rolled together in one. Mm. What you're talking about in Chengdu, though, it seems to be a real development, a change in what it means to be Tibetan. So I was wondering if the people who are building their community there, who are trying to preserve their languages, who are trying to record their history, interact with the wider Tibetan diaspora. I imagine that they're just so different on so many levels that what it means to be Tibetan is just really different now. What I would say is that one thing that really unites all these different projects around Tibetan identity is their emphasis on pan-Tibetanness. We can basically, I think, distinguish between three different projects. One is the diaspora project of Tibetanness, 
One is the state-led project within the PRC where the government is promoting particular types of Tibetan identity. And the other one is this sort of grassroots, semi-civil society version of Tibetanness that you see growing in places like Chengdu today, mm. right? So even though those three projects are all emanating from different sources and are pursuing different agendas in different ways, the thing that really unites all of them is this idea of pan-Tibetanness, that Tibetans are a single people with a shared identity, single language, a common history, shared values, and so on. That project of pan-Tibetanness really impacts different types of Tibetans in different ways. And so their experience of living in a place like Chengdu will be different depending on what kind of Tibetan they are, right? So to give an example of that, the research I've been doing over the last couple of years have focused on these linguistic minorities amongst Tibetans. People who identify as Tibetan, they are Tibetan, but on the other hand, their language is uh, not a Tibetan language. So that means that they're daily lived experience is very different from other Tibetans. And part of that difference is their sort of their subordination in a social and cultural hierarchy to other Tibetans who are perceived as being mainstream or right. normal or regular Tibetans, right? Yeah. Now, in the city, those kind of um, experiences are intensified. You have it within places like Chengdu, first of all, the intensification of this experience of difference where all Tibetans experience their Tibetanness in contrast to the Han Chinese-dominated city, mm -hmm. right? And all Tibetans, regardless of where they're from or what language they know and speak, experience that phenomenon, right? So for all Tibetans in Chengdu, the city is somewhat of an alienating environment for them. But Tibetans are able to mobilize to form their own communities, like in the Wuho district or in other districts scattered throughout the city. They're able to engage in these projects, promote shared culture and language, but all of those things focus on a particular type of Tibetanness, right? The stereotypical Tibetan that speaks Tibetan language and so on. Those linguistic minorities, then they really have to position themselves relative to that project. They have to find ways either to accommodate to it, to resist it, or to avoid it, mm, right? Mm. right? A minority within the minority. Yep. Is it a pecking order? Yeah, there is something of a pecking order, right? Where there's an idea that there is a, a standard type of Tibetan and then there are a bunch of other Tibetans which are sort of deviant and aberrant. So these are marked in the terms that people use for those non-Tibetan languages and they call them uh, mixed languages, inverse or backwards languages, ghost or demonic languages, all of those things, whether they're intended to be derogatory or not, what mm. they do is they, they mark the difference between those languages and a standard form of Tibetan, yeah, right? Yeah. So there definitely is a pecking order. Okay. The PRC isn't the most accommodating state when it comes to developing and encouraging diversity, I think is a tactful way to put it. How do the Tibetans work within the Chinese structure and does the state weigh in on this kind of diversity and community at all? Yeah, so I think... We have to be aware of the different layers of diversity and the way that the state approaches and treats those different types of diversity. For example, in the relation between the state and the Tibetan community in general, I would describe that as a relationship of subordination, mm -hmm. right? The PRC state recognizes the existence of Tibetans. They recognize that they are distinct from the mainstream population. But at the same time, that difference is undervalued and under-supported. So Tibetan language and culture 
are inadequately appreciated, they're inadequately respected, they're inadequately supported. And so we see across the Tibetan communities in the PRC a multitude of anxieties around those things. And that's the source of the ongoing protests that we see from 2008 with the uprisings across the plateau through to language protests across 2010 and 11. We see the self-immolation protests and really developing now in the last couple of years into just like an ongoing rash of online protests, right? This is all the result of the ongoing subordination of Tibetan people within the PRC. But in addition to that, we also have a second layer of interaction between the state and Tibetans. And that second layer, I would call the layer of elimination or the layer of erasure. The state simply refuses to acknowledge that certain kinds of diversity exist. So you have these non-recognized languages, these minoritized languages amongst Tibetans. And so the refusal of the state to even acknowledge that those languages exist has had pretty predictable outcomes, which is that the number of speakers of all those languages are declining because people are choosing to speak languages that the state recognizes and that therefore provide some opportunity to live a social life, right? Mm. To get an education and so on. But in spite of that, Chengdu is still developing a solid Tibetan community to the extent that you could associate this with being the capital for Tibetans. Yeah, that use of the word capital, it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I don't actually mean that Chengdu is taking the place that Lhasa once had as a, a centre of devotion and cultural production of Tibetanness. What I mean by that is that on the one hand, you have this sort of pooling of different types of, of capital, of different resources in this space in Chengdu City. That's partly a result of the fact that the Tibetan plateau has been increasingly securitized since 2008. It's been heavily militarized, heavily policed. Civil society has been restricted and shut down all across the plateau. So all of those people who were involved in those kind of projects now seem to be finding their way into the city of Chengdu. When they come into the city of Chengdu, they're encountering not only other Tibetans who are interested in similar social projects, they're also gaining access to different forms of capital that only exist in that city. You have a very dynamic city, a growing city, a city which is increasingly international, a city which the state is investing lots of money into to develop it as a transport hub between Western China and the rest of the world. So the growth of the city, the investment in the city by the government, the collection of all these people into that area, that's what I mean when I'm talking about Chengdu emerging as a new capital. Well, thanks for your time today, Gerald. No worries. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts or wherever you may listen. You can follow La Trobe Asia on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia. And you can follow Gerald Roche on Twitter as well. He is at G. Joseph Roche. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.